No doubt most of you, if not all of you, have experienced what I remembered as I was preparing for this morning's ministry. When I was a, a young chap wearing short pants, barefooted, going to school, I was in a school play. I think perhaps the only school play I was ever in, if I can remember. But I will never forget looking the audience and seeing all the people there. And the one thing I wanted when I came on the platform was to see my mother. And I looked in all the, through all the faces until my eyes riveted in mom. And for the rest of the play, all I was concerned about was that mom would see me and be pleased with her little boy the way he was doing his part. Ask me what the play was, I haven't a clue. But the one thing that was important to me that my eyes would catch her eyes, that we would make contact. We sometimes call it mental telepathy. But this is, this is more than that. We come to another psalm in which the psalmist is talking about where his eyes are going. We began with that. Where we lift our eyes, where we see with the eyes and not through the eyes. And remember, this is, this is one of the psalms of ascent. They're going up to Jerusalem. They're making their way to the central place for worship. And if Psalm 23, 123 follows Psalm 122, now you might say, now that is intelligent. Well, just a minute. Sometimes the Psalms are not in order. So we've got to make sure that when we say 1, 2, 3, 4, it is so. For example, when you read some of the things in John's Gospel, chapter 1 and 2, it's talking about the end of Christ's life, not at the beginning. Even though it begins, it begins with in the, uh, in the beginning was the word. So when I say 122 follows 123, it is sequential. In fact, when we get to 124, there are scholars who believe that 124 does follow 123. So in 122, they arrive, but they're talking now of what was happening on the way and what continues to happen. 123 the eyes are again presented as the essential means for what is necessary to keep the journey in perspective. I spoke with a gentleman this past week and, and with almost tears running down his face, and this is not someone in this church, by the way. This, this, this man said to me, I just feel like giving up. Nothing is going in the direction I thought it would. And, and this, is, this is somewhat like what we see with, 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 with the psalmist. One of the great scholars called this the psalm, titled the psalm, A Sigh, An Upward Look, and A Sigh. <laughs> Some people like to read a book by going to the back of the book to see how the story is going to end, then to go back to the first part. If you do that with the psalm, you're going to lose out. 
Because the, the way this psalm ends is not the way you expect it from the way it begins. We do not know why the psalmist is writing as he does until we get to the end of the psalm. Four simple verses. But four verses that exposes us or expose us to a kind of a journey that is fraught with difficulties in more ways than one can experience. So I have titled this, Looking in Two Directions. Because you know that's what is taking place. There is the way the psalmist looks. And then he illustrated with the way a maid looks to the mistress and a servant to his master. So let's begin by looking at the direction upward. Because this is where he's looking. His attention is focused upon another world outside of what can be seen. It is the eye of faith that is now looking. Because a natural eye will never see, says the scriptures. I have not seen, I has not seen the things which God has provided. So what happens with this directional look upward? It is a look that was intentional. A look that was intentional. What I mean by that, when he speaks, he speaks in the emphatic. He begins by saying this, to you, to you I lift up my eyes. It is not a second thought. It's a deliberate thought. It's a thought that, that, that is taking place because I understand that this is where I need to be. So he begins by saying, I lift up my eyes. It's a directional look because that's where the child of God looks to cope with the journey he or she is on. You can never look to this life you can never endure this life if you do not have a look that goes upward. Psalm 141 verse 8 reads, My eyes are toward thee, O God the Lord. The same thing is said in Psalm 25 15. The look to you I look. It is, it is a look of prayer. It is the look of reshaping what is being seen with the natural eyes by seeing it with the eyes of faith. And so I intentionally, not a second thought. I remember at times we would say to people, I guess the only thing we can do is prayer. The only thing we can do. Oh my. Isn't there something else? Really? I guess we're, you know, it's almost as if, that if, when God says pray, that he's punishing us. It is as if he's saying, I'm going to give you, you know, like when, when your parents are giving you a licking and they say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. I, I wanted to say my mother was not in the same place, but that would not work. <laughs> What God is doing, you see, the psalmist has learned something. That if God is God, 
In Psalm 11, the psalmist is, is, is pressured by his culture, by his contemporaries. Run somewhere else. And he said, why should I run when my eyes are on the Lord? Even if the foundations are crumbling, I know where I can look to deal with the crumbling foundations. In other words, to look is not a suggestion. It is a command. It is a command. Look unto me, says the Lord, and be saved all the ends of the earth. It is a command. And you know, as I said Wednesday night to the group, the reason it is a command is because it's not natural. We will always want to think that there is some other way, some other initiative, apart from what God says we are supposed to do. And so God reminds us that this look should be intentional, should be the initial step we take in everything when Satan comes to tempt us, look up. When we see confusions in the world, look up. When we see, when we, we, we experience conflict within ourselves or even in our homes, look up. Because, my friends, the answer will be different than if we simply look with our eyes. So the look was intentional. The look was inspirational. Look at the rest of the verse. To you, O Lord, I lift up my eyes. Look at what he lifts his eyes to. Why? Because by looking up where God is, I will see God sovereignly. The word, the King James says, O thou who dwellest. Great, great Hebrew word. The word means to be sitting in control. When it says that God is enthroned, it is saying that God is sitting in absolute control. It's like Jesus at the back of the boat when the, the disciples were quite concerned about water coming into the boat and they were going to drown. And Jesus was fast asleep. He was unruffled by the storms. And when the psalmist looks up, what does he see? Blank space? No. Faith has an object. When the psalmist looks up, what does he see? Does he see a frightened God who is intimidated by the fact that people are rejecting his word, maligning his son, having nothing to do with his word? Does he see God what am I going to do? No. He sees him enthroned. There's a, an old Christian song we used to sing, um, God is still in the throne. And, and you know, I, I, whenever I sing that song, I leave out a word. The, the, the song says, God is still on the throne. The suggestion is that there might come a time when he's not. And believe me, there isn't a time when he won't. He sits there. He wasn't put there by, by voting. He wasn't put there for a period of time. God sits enthroned in absolute sovereignty. And by being sovereign, it means that no one can prevent him from doing what he has willed. No one 
can overcome his power. O thou who art enthroned in the heavens, the look, the look brought God into time. The look gave energy to the prayer of the psalmist. The look was motivated by faith because he had already known what God can do. I love Proverbs 21.1. The heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wills. The heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord and he turns the heart of kings. So that's the kings of Persia. So that's the kings of Babylon. How God turned their hearts when they thought they were in charge. Again, Proverbs 21.30, There is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. You know, trying to get rid of God, trying to get rid of God is like trying to remove Mount Hood by buying a, buying a pair of sneakers and kicking it out of the way. The only one who suffers there, my friends, is the kicker. And man can say what he wants about God. And there was a time when we used that term to mean just men. But now men and women are coming out with expressions against God. You wonder that God stays enthroned, not using his power to zap them out of existence. I, I always remember hearing about an atheist who, like they do even today in London, where you can go and get your soapbox. And he got up on his soapbox and he said to the people, I'm going to prove to you that God does not exist. And so he got on his soapbox and he says, God, if you exist, I want you to strike me down in five minutes. Can you imagine? Look at the faces of the people. Four and a half minutes. Four and three quarter minutes. Five minutes and he's still breathing. And he said, proof, I'm still standing. Does anyone have anything to say? And an old, decrepit gentleman got up and he said, I don't know which God you were talking about, but the God I serve cannot. His patience does not run out in five minutes. He's enthroned. He's the God who is unruffled by turmoil on the earth. He's the God who remains faithful to his word. When he gives promises, he doesn't hope that they will work out. He wills that they work out. They work out. And so this look was an inspirational look. My friends, one reason that so many of us labor under the burdens of life is because we do not look in the right direction to the right person. We do not look in the direction that brings our soul's courage so that we are able to stand 
in spite of what's going on. You know, I made mention of this Wednesday night. Some of you are familiar with Eugene Peterson. And Eugene Peterson is, is one of my favorite writers. He's uh, an excellent writer. But last week, uh, 10 days ago, he came out with the idea that, that he saw nothing wrong with same-sex marriage. Well, the response was such that in 24 hours he changed his mind. Let me tell you why I bring that story out. Dr. Peterson, and I have his books in my library, was pressured by a reporter to say something that the culture wanted him to say. But he soon realized that he was wearing a pair of sneakers trying to remove the moral monkhood. And he recanted. I'm happy to say that. Because you can just imagine, my friends, the LGBT group, when they saw that, and we saw writings of those who say, yeah, see, Eugene Peterson says, God sits enthroned. And there is no counsel. There's no wisdom. There's no understanding against God. Because God is God. And he cannot be pressured into changing his mind and his program. It was a look, the upward look, the first directional look for the Christian is the upward look. And that look is intentional. And that look is inspirational. Let's look at the direction downward. The direction downward. That was the look being intentional, but look at what he finds in the downward look. It's a limited look, I call it. A limited look. Why is it limited? It is limited because it is man looking to man. A man looks to his servant, to his master. A maiden looks to her mistress. It is the look of comparison. It is the human look that elevates one group above another. It is a look, my friends, that that can only produce what humans can produce. Let me be short with this to just give you something the scripture says. Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man, in whom there is no help. His spirit departs. He returns to his earth in the very day he dies. His plans perishes. Stop regarding man, says Isaiah 2.22. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is his breath. For what account is he? And I thought, how can I, how can I bring this for you to see? In 1931, Aldous Huxley wrote his great Brave New World. In Brave New World, the whole concern was that he wanted to change the world and bring something new into this, from the suffering and everything that had happened, in, especially in the wars that had been experienced. And, and I don't know if you are familiar with that, but when I did my research and look at some of what he was suggesting, I wouldn't want the world he was suggesting. 
means that you would be drugged in order to be controlled. <laughs> Others have come up with the same idea. That was in 1931. But in 1958, he wrote a second book, Revisiting the Brave New World. Because in Revisiting the Brave New World, Huxley was saying, what I thought would happen, I thought even by giving the suggestion that there could be a brave new world, that, that culture would move toward that. And by the time he's writing, the world was falling apart with another war, not a rebellion. And so he rewrote his book. And then in 1962, he wrote another book called The Island, in which he, he, he envisioned a utopia, but almost as if nobody lives there. <laughs> because human nature is not getting any better. Aren't, aren't we seeing this today, friends? We are hoping, we're hoping that the right man gets into the, the, the White House, that the right person gets into Salem at the Capitol building, and all we're getting is what humans can do. Confusion, conflicts, contradictions. That downward look, my friends, tells us that we had better find some other escape for the ills of the world in which we live. We need something brand new. Education did not do it. Building new house projects did not do it. One of the things they're doing in California now, I don't know if you want to move there, but one of the things that the governor of California is doing, he is suggesting a minimum wage for every person who lives in California. So that for every person living in California, and they're doing this so that they can prevent people from stealing. That they can prevent people from having to, to rob stores. They're even giving people, prisoners, money to stay out of prison. Do you think they're going to stop? Only a fool believes that. But we have all these things happening because the downward look, my friends, is a look of despair. The downward look is a look of defeat. You cannot change human beings by giving him things to change. A leopard cannot change its spot, if you please, the Bible suggests. And so the downward look brings us to a place of a dead end. So what does the psalmist say? As there is a look in the world, so I have my look. And my look is a, I call it a lucid look. Because it begins with that word, so. They look, and we look. But where we are looking, we're not looking in the same direction. When I look, I go beyond human limitation. I go to the God who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that I can even ask or 
think. Isaiah 51.1 Listen to me, says the Lord. You who, who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and the quarry from which you were dug. In other words, if you are a creature, look to the creator. If the image of Caesar is on the coin of Rome, the image of God is on your life. And if Rome looks to Caesar for its protection, and if Rome looks to Caesar for its provision, so we look to God for our provision and for our protection and for his goodness to us. That's what the psalmist is doing. As they're going now, they're becoming conscious of what surrounds them. And he has, he has a look that is lucid. He has no question about looking in the right direction. He can see how others are looking. I was telling somebody, I think the class I was teaching this morning, this morning, yesterday in, in, in Toronto, a fellow was sentenced to 25 years, uh, to life imprisonment and 25 years without parole. Listen to what he was in there for. He was about to be married yesterday. But in getting ready to get married, he had a, he had a criminal record. And he knew that his mother might tell the gal to whom he was about to get married that his mother would tell this gal about the record of her son. And to prevent his mother from doing that, he strangled his mother to death. His brother came in seeing him doing it. And I apologize to Randy this morning. No, I apologize to Warren because I know that a good thing went bad in wrong hands. He took a bow and arrow and we released that arrow right into his brother's head. His other brother came in and he took another arrow and stabbed him to death. My friends, the human heart is such that if we do not believe what the scriptures say about the human heart, we will try and find ways by which we can prevent things like that from happening. And we will say, you know, I, I, I think I think of O.J. Simpson being released from prison. And, and I was living, we were living in Toronto at the time when that white jeep was going down the highway. And when the sentence came, nobody could believe it, including myself. And we wonder, is there a place for justice in this world? The answer is no. The Bible says that justice for man comes from the Lord. And my friends, if you and I, if you and I are to deal with the injustices of the world in which we live, we need to look in another direction. Not in the direction that the maid looks to. 
that the servant looks to. Because they're looking to other human beings like themselves. Some masters are good, some mistresses are good. But the thing that drives them is the thing that drives everybody else. Sin. Sin. So his was a lucid look. He was clear. Soul. Let me finish that with my third point. The distress. What caused? Now here's the end of the text. See, if you look at this, you could never go to the beginning and come with the right conclusion. What was the reason for distress? Listen to what he says. Two reasons are given for the circumstances that drove the psalmist to lift his eyes. The first is, we are tired. That's exactly, the King James says, exceedingly. We are overcome. We are surrounded with contempt. To contempt. The word contempt means to be seen as useless and worthless. It is to be, it's to be treated with a, a, a better than you attitude. In fact, it is to, it's to say, you are stupid. I heard someone said yesterday, sometimes people fall out of stupid tree and they hit every branch on the way down. My friends, are we not living in days of contempt right now? Do you know that if you say you are a Christian in the workplace or any place, you are seen as a, a moron? The excuses. Christians are not even allowed to go to universities to speak. You don't even have to be a Christian. All you have to do is to believe in Christian values. And the, the, the noise, the, the, the reaction is so loud that the only thing presidents, after presidents of universities are doing is to prevent Christians from coming on their campus. You can't even go on the campus. This is not only in the United States and Canada. It's in Britain. In Oxford, at Cambridge, read of situations where all they want, you know, I, I find this very interesting. I am a moron if I believe that God created me in his image and has spoken to me, giving me instructions for living. I'm a moron for believing that. You are a moron if you believe you came from slime. You are intelligent, I should say, if you believe you came from slime. That somehow, two and two came together way back somewhere, 12 million years ago. And slime produced you. <laughs> and, and I am stupid? You know, friends, do you know, listen, it takes more faith to be an atheist than to be one who believes in God. There is no way that, that, that I can believe what they're saying I'm to believe and to feel that I should live with that. We are exceedingly filled with contempt to the place. This is what I believe this is what caused Eugene Peterson to do what he did. He didn't want the contempt 
of the world. And believe me, he knew what he was talking about because when he recanted, he is getting it. And he's getting it from both sides. And sometimes you might not want to live your Christian life because you do not want to be seen as being foolish or stupid or ignorant. And so you keep silent when you should be speaking. Others do not know that you are a follower of Christ. I remember one night, not one night, one day in class, when in my graduate studies the teacher was teaching and he said he invited, he invited some, his neighbor to go to church with him one night. And he said, would you believe that when I got there, the pastor, Sunday night when my friend came, the pastor was speaking on the blood of Jesus? Well, I sat in my, my, my chair and I said, well, what's wrong with that? He just felt that that was the last thing he should have been speaking about. You see, if we feel that what we say will bring criticism from others, we tend to be silent with it. We tend not to say anything because we don't want to be seen as a fool. We don't want to be met with contempt. And the psalmist says, on the journey, our soul, we're, we're filled. No matter where we turn, there is no hiding place for the Christian anymore. Sometimes not even in his or her own home. So our difficulty today, let me tell you what our difficulty is. Our conflict today is a language conflict. Let me tell you what I mean. If you share the word of God in any way today, it is seen as hate speech. Hate speech. If your language doesn't meet with what a group of people say, I am amazed at the people who are cowering to the demands that are made. And let me tell you, these people don't want some. They want all. They want us to say, we celebrate with you what God condemns. Instead of saying, God condemns and I cannot celebrate. The, the, the distress was caused by contempt for them. But the second part of it, our souls are greatly filled with scoffing. I, I don't want to go into this. Richard Dawkins, the darling of atheists today, was asked by students at Oxford, since Dr. Hawkins, Doc, Dawkins, that's Doc, not Hawk, Hawk is the other one. Since you do not believe that Christianity is a viable religion, or any religion for that matter, what do you do with those? This is the 21st century now. What do you do with those who profess Christianity? And you know what he says? Laugh at them. That was his answer. Laugh at them. Scoff at them. Let them see how stupid they are. Ravi Zacharias, in responding, said, you know, if he wants to, if he, if, if he wants to complete his statement, he should 
do it in Iraq or Iran to laugh at Muslims there. And if he wants to go there, says Dr. Zacharias, I'll buy a one-way ticket for him. Because he wouldn't get back. My friend, you, can, you, cannot, you cannot criticize that religion without putting your life in danger. This is why France is living in constant danger today because of one editor who said that Islam is a lustful religion. Scoffing. Scoffing. We are, we are there, friends. A few weeks ago, one of the men that the president asked to be in his cabinet was so maligned that I haven't heard the end of it as yet, but he was told, you can't come with this Christian idea to bring that value. I'm going to tell you what this man was missing, the man who criticized this man, that he didn't realize that if that man who believed in God was given that position, that position would be best served because he will be going there with the fear of God, not with the idea of pleasing men. Well, my, my, my time is almost gone. David Jeremiah wrote a book, I Never Thought I'd See the Day When. I don't know if you've seen that book. And he thought, talks about things that are happening today that 10 years ago could not be conceived as happening in North America. 10 years ago. That's how quickly our world has changed. And now Christianity is seen as something to be contemptible and scoff. If you look in Nehemiah 4, 1 to 3, you will see that scoffing and contempt is not new. Every, every generation that denies God scoffs at those who believe. Lastly, the release from the distress. How did he do it? To you, O Lord, I lift up my eyes. This is the posture of prayer. It, 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 is, it is a way to bring relief by knowing that God is in control. Look at what he asked for. Please be merciful to me. Uh, the word, the same word, the same family of word from which we get the word grace, we get the word mercy. And this word means bring relief to me from my distress. It comes from you. You are the only one who can tell my heart like you told the winds and the waves to be still when you walk this earth. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is in 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 20, when uh, Jehoshaphat was facing the enemy. And he said in verse 12 of 2 Chronicles 20, O God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude, this great multitude that is coming against us. And, listen to this, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. What I see, I cannot cope with. But I can cope with what I see if my eyes are on you. That's what we have, my friends, in Psalm 123, trust, confidence in the God who sits on the throne. If you are a Christian this morning, you need to make sure that your eyes are in the right direction. 
If you are not a Christian, the first thing you need to do is to turn your eyes to the cross where Jesus died for our sins because that's the only place where sins are dealt with and where we begin anew. So that like, like others, you too will be able to look in the right direction. Let us pray. Take these moments, friends, to reflect upon what direction you're looking in right now. If you need to look to the Lord for salvation, you want to pray, Dear God, please be merciful to me, a sinner. I believe that Jesus Christ died for me and I now receive him as my Savior. Believing that what Jesus did on the cross, he did for sinners. If you're a believer, you might need encouragement this morning. Look in the right direction. For God said, if, if his image is on you, you can depend upon him. And even when we cannot see what God is doing, we can trust the heart of God. And I pray that we will do that this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name.